Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. everybody doing? My name is James DeFury and this is episode three of Blackballed. I'm really excited uh, about today's guests. I have been watching him all the way up here in Canada when he makes his appearances on the Bill Maher show. That's how I was introduced to him. And uh, his name is Nick Gillespie. He's of Reason Magazine. I guess you could say that he's sort of like a Puritan libertarian, but I'll let him speak for himself. Uh, Nick Gillespie, thank you for joining us here on Blackball. Did I get that right? Or uh, well, thank you very much. I am usually accused of being a libertine libertarian, so oh, uh, it's explain uh, that. I, I have a soft spot for Puritans in a uh, in a kind of theological sense, uh, not because I'm religious, but that's another story. But no, I. Uh, I, I often get accused of not simply saying people should have the freedom to uh, act, you know, in consensual ways on their sexual impulses wherever they go or their drug impulses wherever they go. But not only should we be free to do that, but it's actually it makes sense to do that. Um, so I often get uh, kind of rebuffed as a libertarian by both people on the left and the right and even among uh, many libertarians. So that's actually interesting because I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a libertarian. I actually try to shy away from labels in general. I, I have this weird thing about ideologies. Um, I know some are worse than others, but I have a, a hard time just sort of pinning myself down at, yeah. in one thing or another. But we have, an, we have an, uh, a similar problem in that uh, I get as much you know, criticism from the left as I do the right. Mm -hmm. And what I, think that what I think that sort of signals is that there is a lot of overlap between say classical liberalism and mm -hmm. libertarianism and um right now i mean you it must be tough to be a libertarian sometimes because often it's associated with always, well it really always. it's it's always associated with yeah. with racial um sort of like uh shortcomings shall we say you know there's a there's a there's a long list of sort of public 
wacky kind of libertarians. Right. I was a Ron Paul fan for about 10 yeah. minutes. And then when he said that we shouldn't have to help out victims of hurricanes, I was like, oh, fuck, come on, dude. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, I, I often joke that, uh, you know, just before somebody is about to be canceled or the blackface photo is about to uh, be published, you know, they come out as libertarian suddenly. So there <laughs> yeah. is um, in the United States, there is a I, I think these are very distinct uh, groups because I think being libertarian uh, means that you are the, uh, you know, you are the opposite of a racist um, in, you know, in terms of like general kind of cognition and uh, epistemology, um, much less politics. But there are, um, you know, a lot of these states rights type arguments or local control arguments uh, that were advanced at various stages in, in America after World War II were done. Uh, I, I don't think they're inherently racist, but they were used by racists. And there was overlap with certain arguments that libertarians were making. But when I think of, you know, the the, the hardcore libertarians and, you know, I'm thinking of somebody like the um, uh, economist Milton Friedman, um, you know, who who advanced the idea of school vouchers. Uh, he got that idea from um, segregationists in uh, after the Brown versus Board of uh, Education and Supreme Court ruling in America that uh, led to the desegregation of schools. Uh, some racists came up with the ideas of vouchers saying, uh, you know what, let's fund students rather than schools as a way to get around that ruling. Um, but uh, but Friedman actually advanced it and said, you know what, this is going to liberate poor kids and it's going to liberate black kids from being stuck in school systems that are going to fuck them over no matter what. So, you know, it, it's I, I understand what you're saying. Um, and it's 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 a difficult legacy for libertarians to, uh, you know, have to have to deal with. But we do because our ideas um, I think are powerful, they're meaningful, and uh, you know we need to kind of keep our side of the street clean in terms of making it clear that what we're talking about here empowers individuals as well as voluntary groups. And I, I know a number of uh, black libertarians who are explicitly libertarian, mostly because they fear state power, because they know as blacks in America or in most, in most parts of North America, if you're black, the state is against you. It's not yeah. your friend. So that's one of the reasons why they're libertarian. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I thought about that just before going on air. I, I couldn't think of a, a lettered way to put it, but the idea that I feel like uh, libertarianism might be one of the only choices for black America just given their history. Uh, right. You know, if, if, if one of the guiding forces is, uh, you know, fighting against and protecting yourself against tyranny, Jesus, <laughs> what is a better case study? You know. Yeah, uh, but again, uh, you know, uh, I mean, this is kind of odd to be talking about this out, out of the gate, but I think it's yeah. been a failing of the of the libertarian movement in uh, in the United States, and I'm a little bit familiar with it in Canada, but not so much. Um, but uh, you know, it's a failing that we have not reached out more effectively to African Americans because I think we have, uh, you know, and we share certain heroes, people like Zora Neale Hurston, the uh, Harlem Renaissance writer. Uh, as well as um, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass in particular. I think Roger Williams, to go back to, uh, you know, Puritans. Uh, Roger Williams was the uh, a religious dissenter from the Massachusetts Bay Colony who founded the city of Providence, got the Royal Charter of Rhode Island uh, as a place of absolute freedom, um, also was one of the first advocates against slavery in America, race-based slavery. So, you know, there is a history there, but we have not done as, as sharp a job as we have in laying out the case for why 
libertarian ideas, a, a smaller state that does fewer things and gives individuals much more autonomy is actually, you know, the solution to a lot of historical wrongs in America. So right now in North America, well, the world, yeah. actually, we're living in, I guess, what would be called the COVID era. Um, and yeah. it's interesting, the political Pandora's box that it's sort of created, um, especially around issues like liberty. So I am one of these people who, when I read about COVID, the more I read, I feel like the less I know. Um, it's a fluid situation where facts on the ground seem to change so much and data uh, tomorrow won't mean what it meant today. Yeah. And but what I find interesting is that probably the most controversial group are libertarians, and it is sort of based around this idea of freedom of movement and uh, you know personal rights and freedoms being taken away yeah. through things like lockdowns and things like that. Is it even possible to know whether or not um, we are making the correct decisions now? Uh, isn't it something that hindsight will provide? You know, but uh, right yeah. now, and yeah, uh, if if I may, I mean, I think uh, one of the things that happened when when the the pandemic hit uh, in the United States in this you know starting in uh, a year ago, January, February. Um, there were a ton of headlines in the uh, in the popular press in the U.S. saying, you know, there are no libertarians during a pandemic. Uh, this is, you know, when you need the government to make decisions. And because, you know, this is a kind of common situation or this is a place where, you know, everything is is, is interrelated. So you need to have like, you know, a single policy very quickly. That turned out to be clearly wrong. And, and let me explain what I mean by that is that we had in the United States, the uh, Centers for Disease Control, uh, 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 Disease Control and Prevention and the FDA, which are the two federal agencies that are absolutely charged with dealing exactly with these kinds of situations. They got to set policy for the entire country and they immediately made dumb, stupid and counterproductive choices where they asserted a monopoly on how to test people, when to test people, what tests to be used, whether or not it made sense to make a test. Uh, we had people like the Surgeon General of the federal government telling people explicitly, don't wear masks, don't wear masks. People like Anthony Fauci, who was one of the big uh, medical experts that was, you know, in charge of our response said, you know what, wearing masks are a bad idea. It turned out in two, two distinct ways. One, they were wrong in that uh, they, the FDA uh, monopolized testing, and then they sent out a bunch of tests that didn't work. And we lost months of trying to figure out exactly what was the extent of who was infected. We were not, you know, it, I mean, it was just a disastrous response. And then it turned out that, you know, systematically the government was lying to us because it turned out they knew that masks actually were helpful in preventing the spread, but they were worried that there was going to be a shortage of right. you know ppe equipment so they said hey you know they were lying you know making a noble lie to people because it's as if we're like not fucking adult enough to be able to understand something and incorporate that into our behavior um more to the point uh, what we saw very quickly was that a bunch of states uh, for instance massachusetts which is a very heavily regulated state in the United States. Um, they almost immediately, they had a shortage of people. The Northeast got hit hardest early on uh, with this. And, and Massachusetts relaxed its, its medical licensing laws to allow people who were licensed in various states around the country, they could come there and start practicing medicine, whether they were nurses or technicians or doctors, without having to go through all this you know, bullshit rigmarole, they, they became libertarian, they deregulated things. Um, I th we would have had a better response 
to the uh, to COVID if we had allowed for more decentralized decision making in the early days, precisely because what you were talking about, we didn't know exactly what was right or wrong. And when you, you know, when you have bad information or little information and then you insist on a single response, you you better be you really lucky that you guessed right, because otherwise everything is screwed. And that's really, you know, that's one of the lessons, I think, to come out of the COVID era. Uh, the, the flip side of that, too, is, you know, the, the miracles that came out of this in the messenger RNA vaccines and whatnot, that the production of those uh, things were already in the pipeline before. It's a platform, a vaccine platform that was already being developed within From two SARS, days. Yeah. yeah, within two days of the uh, Chinese researchers posting the genetic code of, of COVID-19 online. Uh, the people at Moderna had figure, had sequenced things and they had figured out a vaccine. It took months for that vaccine to get put into the arms of Americans, not out of safety concerns, but out of old time regulatory procedures that did not increase the safety or efficacy of these, uh, you know, of anything. They just delayed implementation. So, you know, we had, you know, relatively free markets developed, you know, a vaccine that worked. Government got in the way of getting it out and as widespread as possible, as quickly as possible. Yeah, on your point uh, about Dr. Fauci, we had a similar, we, our, our, our Dr. Fauci is named Dr. Tam, and she sort of heads up the communications, at least from health officials in Canada. And she did the same thing. And I started noticing a pattern where if the WHO released a press release, it just trickled down to governments and almost was repeated almost verbatim by health officials. And that mass um, um, soundbite, I guess I'll call it, was was one of the first things that we noticed. And it was just, it, it was exactly like you said, they didn't want us to hoard the good mass. Yeah. And, I, and, and then I was like, well, what about policy? Why can't you just tell the manufacturers, listen, direct right. your products to frontline workers and hospitals um, so that we don't have to... It reminded me of when, um, you know, like, uh, remember in the X-Files when uh, the overriding sort of idea was that you don't want to tell anyone about aliens because you don't want to cause yeah. mass panic. Yeah. It was so sort of said you lie about it and then it leaks out and you create crazy conspiracy freaks, yeah. uh, you know, who do more And then Scully gets kidnapped that. by a COVID alien, right? Yeah. It, like no, I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning. I always think of, uh, you know, the, for me, it's the end of Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston, where Dr. Mm -hmm. Zayas, you know, it reveals he's been telling a noble lie all the time, you know, because he knew that apes had descended from humans. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, we're fucking adults. Um, you know, we're, we're independent, autonomous individuals with rights, with brains. And this is something, you know, we we actually act properly when given the right information. I mean, America isn't filled with people who, you know, are looking to throw people out of a lifeboat. Um, and, you know, if we had been if we had been dealt with squarely, I think things would have gone a lot differently and and, and better, you know, on the margins, because part of this is also, you know, as you were saying, a lot of COVID stuff, we probably won't really know a lot about exactly what would have been the best results and worst, et cetera, for, de for decades, if ever. Uh, the other thing, though, that um, also is troubling to me, uh, and again, this gets into kind of libertarian themes of centralized control or of the government at whatever level telling people what to do. Um, you know, in I, I live in New York City, and in New York City, things were shut down very arbitrarily. And so, you know, certain stores were listed as essential businesses. 
and others weren't. And so a clothing store was not an essential business, but a pharmacy or a grocery store was. And, you know, and and then schools were shut down, but somehow grocery stores were able to stay open. You know, it, it, and none of it made any sense. And instead of uh, what I think would have been a smarter result would have been to have said, here are the safety protocols as we know them. And if you follow them, you can open your business if you want to. Your customers can shop there if you want to, but you'll be following a kind of best practices of safety and things like that. It's disturbing to me that the government was able to say, okay, well, you know what? You're essential. You're not essential. Uh, you know, and, and like what happens next? Because this is not simply, it's not like COVID happens and then we go back to the before times or anything. Every time the government acts, it creates a precedent for something that might come next. And I've already heard, or we heard this a lot in the U.S., I suspect the similar rhetoric in Canada that, um, you know, this was, um, you know, uh, in other cases of public health, we may be going to lockdown, we may be doing this, we may be doing that. And then suddenly people are saying, well, you know, global warming is a, is a uh, public health mess, uh, you know, concern. Racism, structural racism, systemic racism is a, you know, is a public health concern. You know, have we created a kind of dry run, uh, you know, for something down the road that's going to be particularly onerous? That kind of seems like waxing poetic, you know, comparing a, a contagious, you know, mm -hmm. disease to to thoughts that are mean. Um, right. But nonetheless, the, the uh, one thing that I wanted to just circle back to for a quick second is that it's kind of coincidental, isn't it? That even though they they were operating from the same playbook as, you know, um, don't tell citizens about UFOs. And then they announced that UFOs are real <laughs> <laughs> during yeah, the you pandemic. Know, I'm I'm a big fan of the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, you know, the guy who wrote Android's Dream of Electric Sheep and uh, Scanner Darkly, uh, the, mm. the uh, movie, to the short story that Total Recall, the Schwarzenegger movie was based on. And his work consistently comes back to this idea of people who don't know if they're human or if they're androids or if they're being dreamed by somebody. We are living in a Philip K. Dick universe. I don't know exactly when that started, but yeah. You know, so you have a pandemic and a lockdown and then the government says, oh, yeah, by the way, we we may have actually been in contact with alien. It's just it's too much. Every 15 minutes on Twitter, you realize like we're living in in some kind of bizarre uh, counterfactual universe. And doesn't that kind of feed the conspiracy theorists? And I'm not talking about people that question the government. I'm talking about the conspiracy no. theorists, right? Like I'm talking about the people that think nanobots are in the vaccine so right. that 5G will read our thoughts. Or so whatever. that Bill Gates now can get more dates since he's getting divorced, you know, so yeah. this is all being planned. Uh, yeah, you know, and one of the things that I write a lot about um, is, and or have been over about the past 15 years is what happens when countries go from being low, tr high trust societies to low trust societies societies. And a bunch of sociologists, economists, uh, political scientists have looked at this phenomenon globally. And what happens uh, reliably is that when countries or societies become low trust rather than high trust, where you don't believe, you know, you don't believe the your government, you don't believe in your businesses, you don't believe in your fellow citizens, um, you know, you end up asking for the government to control more and more of your life, even though you know the government is either incompetent or acting badly. And 
in America, and I, I suspect this is true broadly of North, uh, North America, we have been going from a kind of high trust society to a low trust society. Not surprisingly, we expect or demand that the government does more and more and structure more and more of our lives, regulate more and more aspects of business transactions as well as personal transactions. Uh, this is a bad place to be. And as a libertarian, and uh, some people find this kind of counterintuitive, I, I'm not an anarchist. I believe that the government is legitimate and that it has, you know, it, it should be doing certain things, you know, fewer than it does, but it should be doing those competently. Um, I'm really concerned as we move into an era of low trust, um, you know, we are actually, we're creating the grounds for government to do more and more and to do it badly. Yeah. And I mean, wasn't Reason Magazine sort of uh, founded uh, in an era of low government trust? It, what, it was it, the beginning. Was it, yeah. It's mm -hmm. from 1968. Um, you know, 19, it, uh, the first issue is technically May 1968. So it's like it's funny. It was founded by a guy who was kind of a devotee of Ayn Rand, among other things. That's why the magazine is called Reason. She believed, you know, the philosophical concept of reason is what made humans humans. Um, but he was, so he was a kind of a semi-objectivist, but he started this magazine that hated, you know, in the first issues, you can see, um, uh, you know, he hated cops and he hated hippies, but he started it in May, 1968, you know, the, the month that, you know, uh, uh, kind of student revolution and, and, you know, left-wing revolution really roiled, uh, Europe. Um, but that was the beginning, you know, I mean, you can trace it back. You can, you can start the, the, the clock running anytime, but, you know, basically in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, uh, in the United States, certainly, you know, the way the Vietnam war was prosecuted, the way that Lyndon Johnson lied about, you know, I mean, the, you know, one of the great lies in American history was the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which helped amp up our presence in Vietnam. It turned out to be totally fabricated. Things like the Pentagon papers were, you know, hidden, uh, which was a, a government history of why we shouldn't get involved in Vietnam was, you know, tried to be kept secret. Then Watergate, then uh, a series of um, revelations during the 70s that the National Security Agency, that the uh, FBI, the CIA had been illegally spying on Americans for decades and in massive numbers, you know, it just keeps going and going. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Iran-Contra, uh, Bill Clinton's various scandals, uh, you know, the way the way uh, we ended up in the Gulf War or rather invading Iraq in 2003, you know, this, you know, yeah, of course, we live in a low trust society because our government has been lying to us constantly and only an idiot wouldn't believe that. But then you got to deal with, you know, we, we need to figure out a way to build back trust and confidence in our government as well as our businesses, which also also often lie and our kind of third sector, you know, nonprofits um, uh, in the United States, you know, going back uh, 15, 20 years, the United Way, a major philanthropy turned out to be running a giant scam. And, you know, in the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts, uh, you know, it's like it takes a toll. So even and and even through deathbed confessionals like Robert McNamara, yeah. you know, before he died, that guy blew the lid off of basically every single foreign policy decision he was ever involved in. Right. And then right. nothing happens. The The movie gets seen by a few people yeah. and then no one no one decides to sue the U.S. government in a class action lawsuit. To, to, I don't know. To, yeah. You know? I don't know what you do, but um, yeah, you know, there needs to be uh, other than producing, you know, increasingly cynical people who then start to say and, you know, this is what you see in kleptocracies where 
people are like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be able to change anything. So I'm just going to try and get mine while I can. And it, it breeds a, a kind of a perpetuate self-perpetuating cycle of, um, behavior that undermines civil society. Um, you know, this is one of the reasons why at a place like reason magazine, we talk about policies that are actually effective. So, you know, if you want to actually educate kids, especially kids who don't have, you know, who don't come from families or areas where they have a lot of resources, but kids who really need K through 12 education to be good so they can get on with their lives and actualize themselves. Here are policies that work. This is why the drug war doesn't work. And here is a better way to kind of create a drug regime that will allow people to pursue pleasure without, you know, falling into an abyss of, uh, you know, of, of terrible abuse, uh, of substance abuse or negative behavior. These are the things that we need to be focusing on. That's a good segue to talk about drugs. Because okay. I, <laughs> I want to talk about drugs. No, yeah. I mean, I, I am. Um, it's the next best thing to doing them. Well, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, after hearing yeah. you talk, now sounds like a libertarian credo, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Does. And, but and the, or I, alternative music, you know? The rock yeah. era, I think, has ended, so. No, well, pro well, uh, yeah, maybe not. I'm a hip-hop head, so uh, yeah, hip-hop so died, hip yeah, no, died you're in the living, 90s for me. No, but, now, but, but, it, but it's always been there since then, but you just don't hear yeah. it on the mainstream, which almost right. makes it better. Yeah, but... Yeah. Um, the uh, so up here where I am, uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what the state law is in New York on marijuana, but in Canada, we're like nationwide, we can grow four plants, right? And mm -hmm. we can consume it recreationally, but the government sells it to us, right? Um, and then so that means that most of us get it off of reserves and our old dealers, right? Because right. the government weed, yeah. first of all, it's, it's just not as well. I mean, I'm not gonna say it's not as good, I've never tried it, I've only smoked yeah. my own weed, but um. Weed aside, psilocybin and, and magic mushrooms and things like that, the therapeutic benefits that they're just starting to discover now and the research that, that governments are allowing to take place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can see it in Canada being, um, it will probably be synthesized by Big Pharma or something like that. But either way, within the next decade, I can see it becoming decriminalized. Absolutely. And I, I mean, actually, I think it will be fully legalized because, you know, decriminalization is, is a good first step, but that doesn't actually legalize necessarily the production and distribution. Um, and, you know, there, and I'm forgetting its name now, but I believe there's a Canadian psychedelic company that has like a billion dollar market valuation. There's, uh, you know, there is so much interest in the coming era of psychedelic drugs, which I'm all in favor of, um, because I think drugs in general, you know, one of, one of the things, whether we're talking about booze, whether we're talking about Adderall, whether we're talking about antidepressants or, you know, ethnogenic plants, um, you know, so-called natural drugs, you know, man, as much as anything, humans are drug taking animals. Um, they're one of the first tools that we learn to kind of use. And I think, you know, as just as a part of being free, we should be allowed to, you know, pursue our pleasure, pursue our insights and our wisdom as broadly as possible. Um, I'm, I'm excited. You know, I joined Reason Magazine as a staffer in 1993. And we had, again, since our first issue, and it was a very lonely time in 1968 to be in favor of ending all drug prohibition. Um, but, you know, we had been preaching that. And I knew kind of like, okay, well, you know, at some point, obviously, weed is going to be made legal. Uh, it still isn't really legal in the US. It is, you know, in about 38 states in various ways. But it's not legal at the federal level. I commend Canada for getting there first. Um, but 
you know, like, you know, it's, it's exciting and exhilarating to see the beginning of the end of the drug war, but we are also just at the baby steps. I think that the coming psychedelic boom is going to be gigantic and it's potentially a real game changer, um, in terms of, uh, you know, individuals being able to kind of explore and heal themselves or trip and have insights. But it's also people who will never use psychedelics because in fact, psychedelic drugs are have never been that popular. And I don't know how much them being legalized will actually change. Uh, you know, I, I think it's still gonna be kind of a small number of people, but I think they're, you know, it's, you know, we're gonna live in a better society when people are free to take the drugs that they choose and particularly psychedelics. I think, you know, I think there's only an upside there. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Yeah, I know that often people cite the Portugal model, um, you know, for or legalization of drugs. I think drug usage goes down, addiction goes down, yeah. but also a focus on, on, on that uh, people that are addicted to things like opiates and meth, it, it, right. it turns into a health issue and, and, and it leaves the criminal world behind. <laughs> the, um, I got to tell you, it's a psychedelic boom in my house twice a month and I couldn't yeah. be happier. And I, 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 I see such a, I see such a benefit to psychedelics and I don't want to belabor the point, yeah. but I really, I, I, I rarely get a chance to talk about this with anybody who doesn't just start laughing and making jokes about it mm -hmm. because, um, but you know, I, I, I was a candidate, I guess you would call for, for SSRIs at one time and I tried taking them and I swear to God, I, I, I've never taken a drug that's made me feel so angry mm. <laughs> in my life. Yeah. And what, what psychedelics do, or specifically psilocybin, is that it resets my mind. So, it, so you know, every two weeks I take it, and it's like it's not like I'm going downhill for the last three days of those two weeks, but, you know, the grind wears you down. Mm -hmm. And then I take five to six grams of mushrooms, and I go to outer space, and I wake wow. up the next day, and I feel great. And I feel like I can tackle the next two weeks, you know? And there's, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy for you, I, you know, and it's like, why that should you know why that choice should not be allowed is is mind-numbing to me because um you know it, it there's there's no downside to people being able to access the drugs that help them become who they want to be uh, you know be a better you know be a better citizen i mean i i don't want to i don't want to wrap everything into you know some kind of cost benefit analysis or efficiency but for God's sake, if, you know, to be alive and to be adult and to be semi-autonomous and then to be said, okay, well, this drug is okay and this one is not, you know, at various points, I used to drink a lot. I don't drink anymore. And I think psychedelics helped me 
stay away from booze. Like I'm just not a good mm-hmm. drinker. Um, I've taken SSRIs and they've helped me at various points, stopped helping me at other points. I use psychedelics regularly and, um, you know, they, uh, you know, in a, in a weird way, and this is something that I say to people who are advocates of drug legalization and particularly psychonauts, you know, is that, uh, you know, in the same way that uh, drug prohibitionists want to ascribe kind of magic to certain substances, you know, and mm-hmm. when you go back and you look at like reefer madness or something and you see, you know, the insanity that, oh, you know, one puff of a marijuana joint, you know, is going to make you into a, a crazed maniac. Um, you know, that kind of that's insane, but it's also true among those of us who are advocates and users of drugs to kind of demystify them as well. And, um, you know, and so psychedelics, I think, are a tool, really powerful tool. Um, and it's exciting as hell to be living in a time where they we've come back to a moment where they're actually being taken seriously. Uh, and we're going to we're able to use them more and more in the United States. Um, Oregon recently decriminalized all drugs, kind of did uh, for personal use, uh, kind of on a Portugal type model. They also passed a um, psilocybin uh, law, which may or may not take effect, but in a couple of years, you'll be able to take mushrooms or the equivalent at uh, uh, state uh, licensed facilities. You know, this is the beginning. Uh, the Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, passed the non binding resolutions uh, to make the uh, it's what is it the enforcement of laws against like ethnogenic plants the lowest police priority um, it's getting there and and you know one of the things that is fascinating to me about the war on drugs which is ultimately you know it's a war on consciousness it's a war on freedom of thought it's a war on so many things so deeply entwined into every aspect of American life from foreign policy to education to medicine you know you name it to the courts all of this kind of stuff. When the end comes, it's going to be more like the collapse of communism. Like nobody really saw it coming in that time when, you know, from the first pickaxe from inside East Berlin hitting the Berlin Wall to the collapse of the Soviet Union, man, that happened quick. And I think, I hope, I get chills thinking about this. I hope, you know, that we, we are somewhere in that process. But I worry about it too, because it is going to take freaking years to unwind all the aspects, you know, of, of the drug war. We have people in American prisons who are still in jail in states that have legalized marijuana sales and production, you know, who are still in jail for pot crimes. Um, yeah. We've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, and it's funny because um, as in a lot of things in the United States, I'm not trying to beat up in your country, yeah. but a lot of it is steeped in, in racism. Like, I can't remember his first name, but wasn't your first drug czar? His last name, I think, was Anslinger, and he was the guy Harry that coined Anslinger, the, Yeah, yeah, and he was the guy that coined the phrase "gateway drug." Yeah, um, and it was really uh, the the overriding message that he was trying to get out was that Mexicans and blacks would smoke weed and then rape white girls and things right. like that. Like, oh, it was and really- uh, you know, he he is the apotheosis of everything that is wrong with the drug war or any drug war. Uh, and was an overt racist, you know, and, and the history of drug prohibition in America is not exclusively tied to race, but it's it's very deeply much so. And, you know, for a while, like basically, you know, the playbook is, is that you take a substance you want to ban, you identify it with a an outgroup, uh, you know, cocaine and Negroes in the early teens of the 20th century, marijuana and Mexicans. Uh, eventually, you know, it, it, it goes opium and the Chinese uh, before that. Uh, then finally, you know, it was kids and LSD uh, in the late 60s. So, you, you know, you, you, so it's not exclusively race. Uh, ecstasy or MDMA and kids uh, in, in the 80s. 
Um, yeah, it's it's a very tired playbook. And one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm a late boomer. I was born in 1963. The boomer generation has a lot to answer for. But one of the things that they may have done right is usher in an age of relative comfort with trying a lot of different drugs. And as boomers get older, you know, and they are, I, they, we are played out, man, you know, and it's like, you know, we want weed, we want psychedelics, we want, you know, we need a new drug, you know, to paraphrase or to quote Huey Lewis uh, from the 80s. And, um, you know, that that is not a small reason why the drug war is ending. And I mean, I, I'm fascinated with the cultural aspects of certain drugs. You know, I'm, 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 I like the, um, I like the cultural aspect of LSD and deadheads. Right. You know, I, I like the cultural aspect of MDMA and rave culture, or at least what rave culture used to be. Right. And uh, Rastafarianism, I guess, in marijuana or hip hop mm -hmm. and marijuana. And it's, have you ever had tried to have that conversation with a person that has no experience with drugs and they're just like, well, it just sounds like you're trying to figure out a way to excuse your drug use. And it's like, yeah. no, they go hand in hand, man. It's like wine at a wedding, you know? Yeah. It, uh, no, I, and that's, that's a perfect example too of where, you know, one of the things that we have not yet really seen in, in America is a, uh, a what what a real what a healthy drug culture is going to look like. We've seen snippets of it. And when you think of something like rave culture, the variety of um, informal and even kind of formalized institutions that cropped up to help people, you know, people who would test drugs mm -hmm. at raves, people who would take care of people who were overheating or dehydrated or fucked up too much. Uh, you know, when you look at a place like Burning Man, my girlfriend, Sarah Siskind, who is a big psychonaut um, and in her own space, worked at the Zendo 10 at Burning Man, you know, which is a group of people who you know, at, at like, you know, the ultimate kind of rave, you know, they, you know, they're there to take, take care of people who have uh, party too much or for whatever reason are out of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so we see snippets of what's going to happen, but it is like a wedding where, you know, occasionally, you know, some people are going to have too much to drink, uh, et cetera. But mostly what happens is you create a series of uh, ways of kind of moderating and regulating and facilitating positive experiences with intoxicants or euphorics, uh, you know, and things like that. That's what we're going to be doing on a civilizational level. It's going to be pretty fucking great, you know, and this is, you know, we can make fun of like ayahuasca bros, you know, taking private jets to uh, Peru or something, you know, in order to do things, but they are creating a, you know, a system or, or, or you know, and tapping into an existing one often among, uh, you know, kind of uh, aboriginal groups and whatnot. But, you know, we're building that world and it's going to be a better world because people will have more choices to expand their consciousness, to enhance their consciousness, to, you know, kind of try out new things and innovate. I mean, it's, it's very exciting. Um, and, um, you know, the main thing that we need to do, it's kind of like, you know, vaccines, we need to figure out a way to get the you know the the people who are going to insist that we should be going slower out of safety out of caution et cetera, we need to kind of get them out of the way you know we definitely need to be mindful and intentional in all of this stuff but we cannot let people's fear keep us from getting to you know the place where we should be and where we should have been decades ago you know i i agree and um i just i just want to go back to rave culture for a second yeah. because I was uh, I was a late bloomer as far as um, electronic music goes in general. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, long story short, I ended up um, 
hooking up with this. Uh, I met this this guy at a uh, at a train station. He was there with his girlfriend, and um, I needed a place to live. And two weeks later, I was living with him, and I act and and his girlfriend, and I accidentally moved in with the top rave promoter in Toronto. Right, so I just got <laughs> thrown into this scene, and. I didn't realize before the first time I did ecstasy that I completely lacked empathy. Wow. And, and it was strange because the first time I did it, I was like, I was trying to figure out what I was feeling and it was good obviously. And I felt really like lovey and conversational. And then I turned to my friend and I'm just like, I, I, I don't want to sound like an idiot here, but I, I feel so good right now yeah. in a way that is about more about emotions than it is about physicality. And when I uh, fell asleep a day and a half later and then, <laughs> and, and then woke up, the empathy remained. Like it's like yeah. it opened this weird window and it just stayed open. And I, I've been a nicer person ever since. And there are people that would hear me say that and be like, you sound like a drug addict. And I'm just like, I think this is what people would call a success story if it was a pharmaceutical drug. Right. Right. It's and you know it's um, interesting that uh, groups like Maps, uh, which has a branch in Canada as well as the U.S., and Maps in the U.S. for thirty-five years has been working to legalize MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and you know they've been focusing on on survivors of rape and sexual assault and uh, soldiers with PTSD and whatnot. But the applications are much more broad, and one of you know one of their insights into this is the idea that we all recognize that a traumatic, a single traumatic event can really affect people for almost the rest of their lives. Um, but so can a single good uh, experience as well. That's and right. that, you know, we're starting to, you know, we're, I, I mean, this is, you know, I, I don't know that this is libertarian per se. Uh, for me, it is because I'm libertarian and I like taking psychedelics and I see you know, one of the things that I'm interested in as a, as a kind of large project is how do you, you know, how do, how do you get people at scale to kind of self-actualize and to live the lives they want to, you know, to become who they want to be. And I see drugs as one helpful tool in that. It's not the only one, but, you know, it's exciting to see people taking this kind of consciousness um, expansion seriously. And, you know, a lot of people are going to have different, um, experiences. And this is where, you know, as an, uh, you know, when you accept that people are individuals and they have different experiences, it's okay. Um, it's funny cause I totally get what you're saying about empathy and MDMA. I've had people who take MDMA and it has almost no effect on them, but then something like mushrooms, you know, blows their mind or weed or people who, take alcohol, like I become a dick when I'm, you know, when I've drank too much, um, you know, and other people become wonderful, warm people who then shut it down and go to sleep and go to work the next day, you know, so it's like, what we need is a pharmacopoeia, you know, as vast and varied as, uh, you know, as humanity itself, and we'll be in a better place. You know, I agree. I and alcohol. I stopped drinking about a year and a half ago. Uh, same reason. I just didn't like myself. Um, I'm not sure if you ever met Christopher Hitchens, but the yes, stories I, that I, I was actually friendly with him, but the yeah. stories I've heard about that guy polishing back like a, like 20 ounces of Johnny Walker and yep. still being able to be the most articulate man in the room is a complete fucking mystery to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I, it's, you know, again, it's, um, you know, this is one of the things I think, you know, for libertarians, uh, as, as a kind of general, 
you know, way of being. It's like you don't want to be normative about stuff uh, in terms of like, well, you shouldn't take this substance or this substance. Behavior is another matter. And if you're taking, you know, a substance, you know, that turns you into an awful person that nobody wants to be around, maybe, you know, maybe you got to check your behavior and things like that. But it's this, you know, it's this interest. I mean, like we all like different stuff and we also all like different stuff at different points of our lives. You know, like certain types of drugs affect you differently as you age or when you're under certain circumstances. And again, you know, just like exercise does, you know, just like food does, you know, it's, it's just a better world when there is a sense of open-endedness of innovation, of experimentation and of, you know, people being allowed to, you know, run what John Stewart Mill called experiments and living because, you know, you go through your thing, report back. I learned something from that and maybe I adapt it. You know, I, I, I kind of, you know, personalize something that you did and bring it into my life in a way that's helpful that then somebody else sees and they're like, Hey, I got an idea from that. I mean, this is, you know, this is the way it should be. And, you know, the war on drugs is, uh, you know, it is racist, it is sexist, it is classist, it is xenophobic. It is such a scourge upon the land. I mean, it makes COVID-19, you know, look like a walk in the park because we know this will end. And this only kills, you know, you know, five tenths of 1% of, you know, the people who get infected and it doesn't kill children. You know, the drug war has been going on in America. You know, you can date it, you know, back to the 19 teens, to the thirties, to the 1970s, to the eighties, you know, it's certainly going on now, but it, it kills young people and old people, uh, you know, and, and it, it, it's not going away unless we make it go away. And what is it? four trillion i don't know something like that like that it's yeah. cost since like it's, 1960s it, yeah. or something yeah you know? it's it's uh, who know you know and it's one of those things where it's like you know again you know it, the the money in the drug war is hidden all over the place because you know how do, how do you direct how do you account for all the costs of in the united states for decades kids were su subjected to you know a couple hours a day of bullshit you know drug education classes that actually when the government looked at dare the single biggest program they found it had no effect on drug use among boys and it had a slight it it was associated with a slight increase of drug use among girls you know but you know so that's like you know if it's an hour a week you know for out of millions of kids over decades you know how do you calculate the waste of money you know that goes mm. into something like that um, I guess we should talk about Trump just for a second because sure. I don't. I, libertarians seem to like him a little bit when he was. I, I mean, yeah. that's a broad. That's a broad stroke uh, statement. I don't. Yeah. It's just hard to. It's it's really hard to pin down like the spectrum of libertarianism. Like I don't yeah, know what and, that looked like. You know. And you know what I would say. Um, you know, one of the ways that I've changed over time is that I think when I entered the kind of official libertarian movement, I thought more of libertarianism. First of all, I, I, you know, I use libertarian as an adjective and I think about it as a direction. It's kind of a default setting. You know, when you start a computer or you, you know, the first time you open up word or something and it has defaults, you know, it, libertarian is a direction. It's a default setting that it's like, okay, generally speaking, we're going to give people more options and more ability to make choices in whatever circumstance we're talking about. Sometimes you reel those back because it doesn't work or, or it gets in the way, but it's a tendency. It's a, it's a direction towards more into more freedom, you know, however you define that. Um, I, when I started out, I thought about it more as kind of like, okay, here are 10 policy, you know, here's a quiz 
And it's kind of like, you know, if you don't score 10 out of 10, get the hell out of here. You're not libertarian. You're the enemy. Uh, and I think a lot of that still persists in the movement. It's not, you know, every movement is kind of like that. Um, and I think with somebody like Trump, I, I'll just speak for myself, what I found appealing about his emergence, it wasn't his policy positions for the most part, because on things like immigration and on free trade in particular, he was absolutely anti-libertarian. I mean, I think for me, one of the basic things beyond kind of pharmacological freedom and, you know, consciousness freedom, um, freedom of movement across arbitrary borders, whether it's, you know, states within the U.S. or between Canada and the U.S., immigration, migration, freedom of movement is absolutely, you know, in the holy trinity of my libertarian ideas. And Trump is the worst, had the worst rhetoric on immigration. I, I've actually life. never heard a libertarian say that before. Really? You know? Okay. Yeah. yeah the, well, and the reason you know, why is then, because... No, I've probably been surrounded no. by really shitty libertarians, but like, <laughs> but no, but because usually what they would follow up something like that, if mm -hmm. if a liberal would say like open borders or something, would be like, well, then the government has to pay to like make sure that these people have like you know a, a social safety net or something like that, you know, and so they get they get they get all caught up in the cost, the government costs right. for open borders and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and there's a famous Milton Friedman quote, the economist who I cited before, who said, you know, at one point that uh, he thought that open borders, are, uh, you know, and a welfare state were incompatible. Uh, you know, it turns out that immigrants who come to the United States, first off, they're legally barred from, you know, getting most forms of welfare. When people talk about the costs of immigrants, they end up, when you start boiling it down, it typically ends up being the cost of K through 12 education for their kids who more often than not are actually American citizens if they're born here. So, you know, it's like, you know, and, and these are rounding errors and in, in kind of, you know, the American government is, you know, it's it's wasted six trillion dollars in bullshit COVID spending over the past 12 months. And you're going to, you know, worry about like a kid, you know, who, who is who is an American citizen and has every right to a shitty public education, just like, you know, like every other American kid, um, you know, uh, so I without getting too dragged off, but uh, that, you know, Trump in, in many ways was anti-libertarian. In other ways, it was more the fact of his emergence and of like kicking over. He revealed the two-party system to me as, you know, they were paper mache Mephistopheles, uh, to quote a, a, a phrase from a Heart of Darkness by Joseph mm -hmm. Conrad. These edifices, which, you know, we thought were, you know, made of solid rock or granite or something were just ridiculous. Um, and so that's kind of thrilling because I want to see an end to the two-party duopoly, at least as it's currently constituted. Trump talked a deregulation game. He talked uh, in terms of school choice. He was very in favor of that kind of stuff. It turned out, you know, he also talked about uh, reducing spending. Didn't do any of that. One of the things, and this is a lesson that I hope Americans understand, is that his populism, I think it, it, it it's important not to see him as this thing who this guy who just emerged from the swamps and like changed history he's the reliable uh you know kind of outcome of a long-term trend towards this low trust society towards people taking politicians as complete horseshit artists um not expecting politicians to follow through on what they're going to do um he's part of an ongoing process a negative process in america as far as i'm concerned um and um so in that sense he's kind of interesting because he revealed a lot of the fakeness of American politics. And in this way too, Joe Biden, you know, who's the anti-Trump, right? He ran against him. 
you know, Joe Biden is kind of following up on a lot of Trump's policies. You know, he's, you know, he's taken forever to get us out of wars. He is not relaxing uh, the border as quickly as he wanted to. He had to get kind of forced into that. He's not changing trade policy as much. So we can use Trump, not that he's good in himself, but he becomes a kind of marker for the kind of rot and fakeness of, of a political system that really needs a radical reboot as far as I'm concerned. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Yeah, didn't the policy? I, I almost thought that the policies were almost secondary to the clown that occupied the office. And yeah, and and you know what? I, I'm with you. Um, you know, o- Obama killed uh, he, like what uh, civilians in seven different countries simultaneously yeah. with his drone program. Like you could go down the line and, and come up with like the evil things of every right. president. And it felt like Trump also. Uh, you know, kept that march going of, you know, shitty things that American presidents have done. But then with like, even, even, even as I'm trying to describe it now, I can't tell if it was better, worse, or just different that he was so self-evidently unqualified and stupid. Like it it just, it felt dangerous. It felt like any moment, like, you know, he's going to force Gump his way into a war with China or something. I agree. Yeah. But, but you know, it's in a weird way. It's like, you know, he probably what he was the least bellicose of, you know, American presidents in my lifetime, really. So, you know, and, and also take into account. Um, Sorry, do you mean foreign policy wise? Yeah, he I mean, yeah. he he did not start any new wars and he tried to, you know, uh, I mean, it was fascinating in the United States when he said, you know what, we're getting out of Syria, which is a uh, which is a country that Obama ad libbed us into. He improvised a line by mistake. And that's why we were in Syria. You saw the military industrial complex in the United States lose its shit. Um, and, you know, it, it, this was an undercovered story. But, uh, you know, one of the American uh, uh, diplomats who was in Syria, he talked about after Trump was you know, kicked out of office, he talked about how the American, the Pentagon and the State Department lied to Trump about the number of troops, you know, which are, you know, in the thousands as small that were actually in Syria, but it was like, holy cow, like, you know, there is a deep state without getting conspiratorial about it. But the status quo in America is towards having a massive military that is projecting American presence, you know, in hundreds of, you know, or in, in, you know, many dozens of countries around the globe that needs to be rethought. I think, you know, from a libertarian perspective, and I'm joined by a lot of people on the right and the left on that. And Trump, you know, kind of, you know, he was better on that than Joe Biden is at, or Barack Obama, certainly George Bush or Hillary Clinton would have been. Um, there's also that moment, you know, where and, and I think I don't know exactly how to process it or how to maintain it. But, you know, when Trump was coming into office, you also had Macron in France uh, as well as Brexit in England. And without endorsing any of these things, you can say, OK, you know what is it's clear um that a lot of the powers that be this kind of status quo is running out of steam. And I I oftentimes think about this in terms of a long 20th century, where in America, for sure, 
we we are stuck with a Republican Party and a Democratic Party who whose identities were based in late 20th century American politics, and they represent coalitions that don't exist anymore. But we haven't yet gotten to the future. What is it going to be? And, you know, Joe Biden is not, you know, he's not a, he's, he's the end of the line. He's not the beginning of something new. Um, and in many ways, he's a cartoon version of what we've seen over the past 40 or 50 years, which is massive growth of government, uh, the government regulating more and more aspects of everyday life um, and spending more and more money that it doesn't have to fix problems that may or may not exist, but it's ill-equipped to do. Um, you know, I, I'm looking forward to that moment. Uh, and I do think in things like the burgeoning psychedelic renaissance and the legalization of all drugs, we're getting to the 21st century. Uh, but we haven't gotten there yet. And that, you know, and I think there's a global thing, at least in the developed world, you know, in Western Europe and North America and whatnot, there is the breakdown of these institutions that came out of uh, World War II and post-war culture. Yeah, Trump also talked a big game about globalization, right? Yeah. And and that that's like a magic word among, I don't know if it's libertarians or just conservatives. Um, I know there's some overlap there, but yeah. as soon as someone says the globalists, it's like George Soros comes out of the closet right. yeah. and starts yeah. scaring kids With and stuff. fangs and everything. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, it's funny though, too, and it might be different in Canada than in the U.S. In the, in the late 90s, the people who invoked globalization as a boogeyman were the left. I mean, that was, you know, the people in Seattle protesting the World Trade Organization and mm -hmm. smashing Starbucks windows. Now it's right wing nativists in America, um, you know, who had been you know, champions of globalization. And I think, you know, we can read into this. There is a massive amount of anxiety about, you know, it's clear, you know, that the old world is dying. And, you know, this is probably always true. And a new one is being born. Uh, it's not all roses because, you know, I, I believe I'm a globalist. I'm a rootless cosmopolitan. I, I you know, I, I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in New Jersey. I've lived all over the United States. I love localities, but I also want to be a citizen of the world. I don't see these things as mutually exclusive or even in conflict, but a lot of people do both on the right and the left. And, you know, when you look at a country like China, I don't, you know, I, I, I worry about, I, I feel bad for a lot of the people in China who are being, you know, really fucked over by the government. I don't worry about it, at, you know, that China's gains come at my expense or anything, but there is a huge amount of anxiety about, you know, what comes next. And this is something that all of us need to kind of factor into how we talk about things, how we see things, and how we promote a vision of the future that is more about peace and innovation uh, than it is about drawing lines and, and kind of hardening borders and lines in the sand to say your goods, your services, your ideas, your people can't come here anymore and ours can't leave. That's like Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, uh, you know, that's that's the that's the past. And we have to make sure it is the past and stays there. And, and also the, the I mean, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but sometimes it feels like uh the United States' biggest problem is that they might be um, on the brink of civil war. Not on the brink, but the, it felt like in 2020, it felt yeah. like, okay, civil war is going to happen in the next three years, and yeah. it's going to be the mega folk against, I don't know, Antifa or something, you know, and then the mega folk will kick their ass because Antifa doesn't know how to hold a gun and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but I don't think I, they, you know, I got to say, like, if the, you know, if the best, if the MAGA people were bringing their best to the January 6th uh, riot in Capitol yeah. Hill, you yeah. know, we can all take it, take it easy. I mean, these were the most 
you know, kind of uh, exemplary Inept idiots, revolutionaries yeah, of all time who, yeah. who ultimately were like, hey, you know, uh, you know, they they were like they didn't even bring their guns into the Capitol, you know, but they're going to take yeah. over the government. I mean, what you know, but thank God, you know, um, there I don't think there's a civil war brewing in America, but there is, uh, you know, in a, and, and I think Trump kind of recognized this and he didn't articulate oh, yeah. it very well because he's dumb, but like. There is a sense in America, I think, of, you know, that we are past our prime and that, you know, the way I think about it is that we might be somewhat similar to England and France after World War II, where, you know, our time as kind of dominant hegemonic power is is fading. It does, you know, we're going to still be we're still going to be hugely important in all of that. But, you know, things are moving on and we need to come up with a different model of interacting with the world than the one that we had through the end of the 20th century and especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There is no, there is, you know, and even China can't play, you know, China is not the new Soviet Union. No country is going to be as powerful as countries could be 50 years ago. Um, there is too much technology. There is too much decentralization. There is too much uh, communication. You know, when you have things like Skype and, you know, how we're communicating, you know, which were on, you know, this was the stuff of science fiction, uh, you know, in, in, you know, 1989, even, you know, when the Berlin Wall came down, um, you know, things change. Things are generally better. I mean, you know, fewer people are in poverty because trade is up, not because of foreign aid. And, you know, the, these are not, you know, the countries and the places and the people who flourish going forward are going to be radically different than the kind of imperial model of the late 19th century or the kind of neo-colonial models of the of mid-20th century, I think. So I used to think, and, I, and I've been questioning this a lot, a lot more lately, that um, I guess I called myself a moderate, but then I went and looked at what other people define being moderate and what it, what it meant. And I was like, oh, well, I don't mean that. Um, but sometimes I think libertarians have good ideas and sometimes I think liberals have good ideas and sometimes I think conservatives have good ideas. And I am certainly not alone because I, I, I would wager that one of the biggest growing political movements right now are the quote political, politically homeless, right. where they just, they don't feel like there are any of these things, but they can support ideas on their own. Um, and no one has to tell them if they're libertarian or conservative or liberal or whatever for them to support it. They just, think of the idea and they think on the face of it, it's good. So for example, I think, I personally think, and I know you disagree on this, um, that universal healthcare is a good idea. I think the profit motive in healthcare is, 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 is a bad idea. Um, but I also think that um, an, uh, a non-interventionist foreign policy is a great idea. Yeah. And, you know, and I feel like the, uh, the economics of those two ideas um, can can like you know being non-interventionist can fund a universal healthcare system. You are describing you know, Canada, right? Yes, you know, in, in many ways. So you're just a Canadian exceptionalist, I suppose. That's true. I think. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I well, you know, a couple of things on that, and one is that I would, you know, I I am in favor of universal healthcare or universal health coverage, let's say, and I think that the best way to get there is through an actual flourishing free market in medicine and in healthcare and in innovation, because, um, you know, the profit motive is important to coming up with new ways of doing things. Uh, it incentivizes people to come up with, you know, messenger RNA vaccines and, you know, LASIK surgery and all sorts of things like that. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't think it's uh, coincidental to progress in medicine that, you know, the United States is, is one of the crucibles of innovation because, 
healthcare providers can make often obscene profits on that, partly because medicine in America is like unbelievably regulated. Uh, having said all of that, and I don't want to get into it necessarily a long discussion about healthcare. Um, you know, it's not always the case that if something is good, the state must be directly involved in providing it in the same way you don't smoke government weed because it sucks. You can have a safety net, but it doesn't mean that the government has to provide it at all price points, or it might be better to give people money. I'm a big fan of, uh, in terms of welfare payments, instead of giving people, you know, in the U.S., we'll give you a voucher for healthcare, a voucher for housing, a voucher for education. Why not just give people who are poor, you know, money and then let them decide how to spend it? Generally speaking, they're better at knowing what they need and, and, and bargaining for what they want. Um, you know, when they have money in their hand. And if we had a freer economy, I think more stuff would be more available at every price point. But having said all of that, I think, uh, you know, one of the questions um, is how do we create a world in which people who want to live in a particular kind of, uh, you know, ecosystem get to do that? And, um, you know, I would love to see in the United States, we talk about federalism, you know, the idea, and actually in a lot of ways, Canada is more federalist, has a, a more of a federalist system, but where we should have 50 laboratories of democracy where, you know, there are radical experiments going on and people can move in between these places and see what they like and kind of, you know, self, uh, you know, self-affiliate. And, um, I, I wish, you know, that's part of a libertarian project, and that means less coercion and more freedom, but also allowing people to do stuff that you disagree with. Um, and so I, I don't know where that gets us in terms of having a non-interventionist foreign policy and, you know, universal health care uh, or something. I was like just that. thinking that one pay, like if you if, if the U.S. military cut their military budget in half, mm -hmm. they could probably fund universal health care. That's sort of where I'm going with that. Oh, like, but you know what? What's going on in America? And this is the problem. This is the reality of what's what's been happening for the past 40 years is like, the, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans say, well, you know, you want a big military. And that's a lot of Democrats. Joe Biden is a war hawk. He always has been his career. Uh, loves a big military, but it's like you want a big military and I want more social welfare spending. Why not both? You know, because the United States also over the past 25 years has completely or 20 years has completely kicked free of the idea that we should pay for the amount of government that we demand. Uh, we have been borrowing money. George W. Bush kicked this off. Obama followed suit. Uh, Trump put the pedal to the metal and Biden is now hidden out of the park of just like, let's just borrow money, let's create money, et cetera. I mean, we're, you know, we're covering like, uh, you know, maybe 50 cents on the dollar of what we're spending. Um, and, you know, why? And as a result, we're getting more military spending and more social welfare spending and more this and more that. And at some point that bill is going to come due. It already has, I think, in the form of lower than average economic growth. There's a, a vast economic literature that suggests high levels of national debt that go unchecked reduce economic growth. Uh, Canada, interestingly, at a, at a point in the 90s, reversed itself. It actually you know, brought down its national debt and saw a, an increase in economic growth. Um, you know, in many ways, Canada is a more um, well-run country than the United States. Yeah, you know, it pains me because I'm an American. I love America.
Um, you know, you guys are so terrible. You're terrible on like, you know, forcing every third song on Canadian radio has to be by Gordon Lightfoot or Bare oh Naked Ladies. Don't even you know, and, and you know, speech <laughs> is bad and, you know, it's more restricted in Canada. But, you know, it's like in many ways, you guys, you know, you're, you're doing something right. Yeah. Well, don't, don't, don't pat us too hard on the back yet because uh, Justin Trudeau is uh, right now yeah. trying to draft legislation to regulate the internet. Right. Yeah, he seems to think it's a good idea to uh, to all those Canadian content restrictions that you were just talking about. He wants to try to apply that to people like me now, right? Which is yeah. ridiculous. Like, like you're an American, you might conceivably the algorithm might take you take this broadcast off the air right. if the law was already in place. Yeah. What right? do you do so. with Joni Mitchell or Neil Young? Right? Like, uh, oh, you know, they you, work, they, you, uh, do they count as a half or a quarter, or do you no you know, amortize the years they were in Canada versus yeah, the yeah. US? Once, once they have their American citizenship, <laughs> I think they they only account for about roughly ten percent. I think. Yeah. But if you've never heard of Gowan or Corey Hart, then um, then you oh, have no I, idea what we're dealing with up here. I <laughs> know what I know Corey Hart quite well. So I'm I, I wrote for that. music and teen magazines in the '80s. So that's right. Yes, and you dated I, Alyssa Milano. I just found I, out. I, today. I, I never dated her. I wrote an advice column as Alyssa Milano uh, in the late '80s. Oh. And oh, okay. for any any girls, you ghost written. You ghost wrote an advice column. Or, yes, I did. And I was going to say for any any girls, any women who read Teen Machine in the late 80s, I apologize. That advice was bad. Oh, my gosh. That's back in the day when um, – who's the guy from uh, that show that's like a crazy Christian now? Uh, that Kirk team, Cameron. Kirk Cameron. He was yes, – or am I he thinking was, Tiger he, Beat? Is that Tiger Beat? That uh, well, it's the type of magazine that I read for. I read for something called Super Teen and Teen Machine and Wow and Hot. And Kirk Cameron – bestrode our pages like a colossus he was yeah uh, he was the hottest uh, hunk you know you, know, you got to so, pay your dues somehow so you might as well do it in the pages oh yeah I, I i i look back on that with with much fondness do you have any framed teen magazines on the wall or anything i don't i you know they're in a box and uh i'm still unpacking uh, after <laughs> a sojourn west so they'll be up i i don't hide from it i i relish it yeah no okay um we're going to wrap up shortly. I, I did want to go back just because he was my favorite person <laughs> to listen, speak, to listen, to speak. And, and, and I'm talking about Christopher Hitchens. Yes. And you said you were, you were friendly with him. Um, how badly was his voice missed over the last four and a half years? Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, particularly interesting about Hitchens, and this is irrespective of the content of his decisions is that he he remained a uh, an intellectual seeker his entire life and um his his life and thought i mean he he was evolving all of the time and you know which isn't to say that he was wishy-washy or that he blew in you know the winds of fashion or anything like that but you know he really thought about stuff a lot and he had a break you know he had a, a very public break with the kind of liberal democratic um uh you know apparatus in america he kind of broke formally with many aspects of the uh, uh, kind of of the British left, um, put, but kept a distance from the ideological right here. And I, I think more than anything, his independence of thought and his insistence on living in what somebody like, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sartre might call good faith, um, you know, is that's what's missed uh, more than anything. Because, uh, you know, I don't think most of us are, I, I know I'll never be as well read or able to, you know, pull up 
whole yeah his recall of great literature you know yeah. uh, you know uh, ever um, but you know we can model um, you know his willingness to go where he thought he should because it was right um, you know and to challenge himself and to challenge the people around him to you know think their best thoughts and defend them uh, you know with brio and strength and with seriousness I have in my life a series of intellectual heroes you know going back to Roger Williams this madman who you know found who who wrote the first um, uh, tract in uh, in English for fully secular government in the 17th century. Who taught? He was a, a classmate of John Milton at Cambridge, for God's sake. And he, you know, he's he's you know he he was principal to the end when it even when it cost him friends. People like Frederick Douglass, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I was lucky enough to study with a character named Leslie Fiedler at the State University of New York at Buffalo while getting a PhD in American literature. Uh, you know, a man of the left who spent all of his time, you know, really making the hardest arguments against his comrades. Uh, you know, and then people like Hitchens. We need uh, people like Camille Polly, I think, is uh, who's uh, very much like a Hitchens type character. That's what we need. And that's what we need to model ourselves on, regardless of, you know, whether we're right, left or center. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, whenever I hear Camille speak, uh, I feel like my wife is getting yelled at by her her nail technician. But um, <laughs> but I, I, there was a pre-9-11 Hitchens and a post-9-11 Hitchens. Yeah. And I remember I, I was not an activist. I was not a protester. But I did go to the, um, the protest. There was like a million people protesting the Iraq war before it started in Toronto. And the only person on this planet that ever made me just go, oh, that's a good point in favor yeah. of the war in Iraq was Hitchens. And you know? I'll tell you, I, I agree. I mean, and you know, he was totally wrong about that. And I think history was totally has wrong. proved that he was absolutely wrong in that all that happened, um, you know, with, with the West ISIS. and essentially the United States intervening there is that we destabilized the Middle East for another 50 years. We empowered Iran to, you know, become a regional power in a way, you know, it wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, you know, so I think he was wrong about that. But yeah, I give him a lot of credit uh, for that. And I knew a lot of, you know, part of that is generational, too. I knew a lot of people of his basic cohort, right, you know, left, libertarian, progressive, who also were in favor. They thought that this, there was this one moment in time where the right type of intervention could fix the Middle East. And, um, you know, I, I, I find that a little bit benighted. I think, uh, you know, history never works that way. But again, you know, credit to him for, you know, saying what he knew was going to cast him out of, you know, any number of, uh, you know, communities that he had spent a lifetime building. Um, yeah, and you don't again, want to be seen carrying yeah. the water for the hard religious right, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but he know, did it with, but he did it with fucking style. <laughs> I agree, but you know, there is something, you know, this is one of the things that is good is the, um, you know, the, uh, the kind of de dispersion of, of media in America is having that effect where you're seeing a lot of people on the left start to break with identity politics. Uh, you know, people who tend to be more class-based or Marxist are breaking with identity politics. People on the right, you know, Trump forced you know, a fissure, like he drove a wedge in the right that forced people to kind of check their premises and start to kind of reimagine who they were and why. And I think that's a good thing. I think, you know, you mentioned Ron Paul in passing. I think Ron Paul did that with the libertarian movement, because on the one hand, Ron Paul had this phenomenal message as a presidential candidate in 2008 and 2012 saying, you know, 
I don't want to run your life. I don't want to run the economy. I don't want to run the world, you know, because in a free society, like, you know, governments don't do that. Presidents don't do that. Commissars don't do that. That was a great message. And it really stoked a lot of people, you know, and then, but Ron Paul has a complicated history to put it bluntly, you know, with things like race uh, and, 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 uh, you know, other things, I mean, you know, and so like he forced a lot of libertarians to, you know, clarify, you know, what do you really believe? And, you know, what should the world look like? And I think, you know, in the end, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an American exceptionalist. I love New Jersey. I think New Jersey is the best part of America. I don't want to live there anymore. I grew up in New Jersey. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, And, and I'm a libertarian exceptionalist as well. And, you know, the one thing though, I think that, so I want libertarian ideas to win, but I think, you know, the best thing going forward, and this is a good moment in time for a variety of reasons, um, where everybody can, you know, speak their speak their truths, and out of that, you know, out of all of that kind of fog and smog and fighting and you know bitching and everything, hopefully we'll we'll come to a place that is the 21st century, that is the future, um, you know, where things are better off, and and you know, when things like COVID get taken care of quicker, uh, things you know, things like wars become smaller and and more sporadic, and there's more peace and prosperity to go around. Well, just coming from this political nomad at the time, who probably would have been uh, left of center when um, when Ron Paul was running, there were there were two ideas that he had that that stuck out to me, and one was uh, he wanted to end the war on drugs, and he wanted to end wars, and those were yeah. the only two things I even cared about. I was like, yeah. I can't believe a Republican is saying this shit. Yeah, like, no, and that, that meant so much more coming from him. There was a great moment where he. You know, somebody was like, you know, Ron Paul in a debate, like you think heroin should be legal. And he was like, yeah, you know, it's like, I'm not going to use it if it's legal. Are you? And, you know, and, and again, to bring it back to the war on drugs, you know, there isn't a single thing that having drug prohibition in place, there isn't a single thing that it does well. It just makes it more complicated. It, you know, it creates crime. It, it destroys the sanctity and integrity of the constitution and of law enforcement. It injects bribes and all kinds of double dealing. It makes it that much harder if you have a substance abuse problem to get help, because now you don't just have to admit that you have a problem. You have to admit you're a criminal or an outlaw. I mean, you know, there's a clarity to, you know, um, getting rid of drug prohibition, which I think can be modeled in a lot of other parts of, you know, social activity. You know, and again, it comes to this question of let's have open debates, let's have honest debates, good faith debates about the world we want to live in and how we get there. And, you know, again, I want libertarian ideas to win, but I think if we're if we're having more of those debates, um, you know, and fewer of the kind of bullshit ones that we tend to have in places like legacy media and legacy politics, you know, the future will come around a lot quicker. You and Bill Maher, both from New Jersey. That's pretty funny. That is you, true. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I'll tell you something about New Jersey. The two things that I that stick out are obviously The Sopranos, which is the greatest show of all time. And I, I'm, I'm Italian. I'm actually half Italian. But when I eat Italian food, when I eat Italian food, I feel like I'm 7,000% Italian. And I went to uh, an Italian restaurant in New Jersey called El Dante. Mm. Oh, my God. It was like walking into Goodfellas, and <laughs> and it was amazing, and it was so good. And I ordered this pasta because I wanted to seem like I knew what I was doing. Because I, because I should, in hindsight, I should have just ordered like a spicy sausage penne or something like that. Right. But I ordered some weird pasta that I'd never heard of before, 
and they were like two foot long noodles and weirdly <laughs> thick and spirally and stuff. And I didn't even finish it, but I, I enjoyed, uh, I saw Paul Servino in a bar, because uh, I had a film festival in his nephew's film, uh, film. I uh, sorry, I had a film in his nephew's film festival, and then Paul Servino drank like a thousand bottles of wine and and sang opera for us. So that was yes. that was pretty fun. Yeah, that is. Um, I'm going to end it there. Nick Gillespie from Reason <laughs> Magazine, because <laughs> why? Where else would I end it? Um, but seriously, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, thanks thank for joining you. us, and uh, I'd like to do this again sometime. Uh, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, that's Nick Gillespie, everybody from Reason Magazine. Um, I think that Dean Blondell, if you're listening, um, would probably say that that is the most reasonable libertarian that you've ever heard speak. I've been a big fan of his for a long time. I'm glad that he was on the show because, um, you know, it's just good to hear a perspective, especially now with what everything that's going on with, with COVID and, you know, how libertarians, at least in Canada, seem to be drawn towards uh, the worst elements. Um, it's, it's nice to know that, um, someone from that side of the political spectrum and my ignorance is probably shining through, uh, because I'm sure that there are, uh, that you know, libertarians are just like anybody else. There's going to be great ones and not so great ones. And, uh, Nick Gillespie, in my opinion, is, is, is definitely one of the great ones. So, uh, thanks again, Nick, for, for coming on. This was episode three of Blackballed and I'll see you later on the Dean Blundell show. Thanks everybody. Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vail. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate.